Our passage for this morning is Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. So Acts 2, 22 to 36. It's printed in your bulletin if you want to look there. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's pray together. Father, we can only imagine what it would have been like to stand there on that day as Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, declared these words. But yet, Lord, we're so grateful that these words are preserved for us here in your holy word. And so I ask that you would fill us with your spirit as we now lean in to pay attention to your word. Father, I, I pray that the truth of Jesus, the son of David, would ring like a bell in our hearts today. That we would delight in this truth. That we would find deep, deep joy in bending our knees to him. I ask that for every single one of us in this room. Help us now, I ask, Father. Amen. Well, good morning. It is a joy to be together like this. We're halfway through December already. I'm not sure how that happened. We're most of the way through this portion of our series. I'm not sure how that happened either, but, but here we are. It's been such a joy to preach on Christ and his coming during this time of the year. I was 
so glad as I planned out the series to see how it lined up so well this way. And so, so here we are today, December the 16th, hearing about Jesus as the son of David. And I'll, I'll remind you, we have two, two more stops in this part of our series. And then in January, we begin that, that third major part of our series where we really talk about a lot of the application for us of this big, huge storyline of the Bible that we have been exploring and, and walking through since the beginning of September. Let me get that slide up here on the, on the screen. And uh, just a reminder that any of the sermons um, you can read or listen to on, on our website if you want to go back and dig into any of this stuff. So we first considered the story of David as we walked through the, the big storyline of the Bible back in October the 28th. And what we saw there was that the most important part of David's life was, was not a part of the stories that we tend to tell, or at least I tended to hear about in Sunday school. The, the most important event in David's life happened after he was anointed by Samuel. It happened after he killed Goliath. It happened after all of David's years of running away from Saul and hiding out in caves. It happened after he finally became king over Israel. Because it was after all this, when David was finally secure and, and dwelling in Jerusalem and safe from all of his enemies, it was at that point that God made a covenant with him. And God said to him, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And then the Lord went on to say, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, we don't have time to go over all of this again, which is why I point you to, to the website. But back in October, we dug into these words and, and we traced out all the different lines of the story. And we saw how in this promise, God was saying that David was going to have a descendant who was going to be the king over the whole world. And that this descendant was going to be the one that would bring blessing to the nations as he ruled the nations with justice and with equity. And connected with this, we saw how the son of David that's spoken of here is, is the fulfillment of each of the previous covenants that God made with his people, right? The, the covenant God made with David was simply the final in a series of covenants that God had been making. And these covenants all built on each other and they all came to together. The lines all converged in this covenant God made with David. The whole storyline of the Bible converges in this one promised person, the offspring of David, the son of David. And so we saw all the way back then, that the son of David is the main character of the whole story of the Bible. He's the one the whole story had been rushing towards up till that point. And so after God made this promise, the people waited. Because Solomon let them down, right? We may have thought Solomon was going to be this promised one that will fulfill all these promises. He wasn't. And so every other king that came afterwards, likewise, just left everyone disappointed and the decades turned into centuries and the people lost their kingdom. They were thrown into exile. All of their hopes were focused on the coming of the son of David. And we see that, that the, the, the writings of the prophets, after the people went into exile, the writings of the prophets were, were full of this hope that the son of David was still going to come. It's this hope that's reflected in, 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 in well-known prophecies like Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You think of the prophecy about a a righteous branch springing up from, from the root of Jesse. There's so many that all of the hope of the people for all those dark centuries was focused on the son of David. It's actually because of this hope that we have the word Messiah, right? When we think Messiah, we think a savior, a rescuer. Messiah in Hebrew or, or in, in, in the Greek language, Christ simply means anointed one. And so who was anointed? Kings were anointed, right? David was anointed. When Samuel said, you're going to be the king, he anointed him with oil. And then the prophecies and the promises, God often referred to the son of David as my anointed or the Lord's anointed, right? So we sang about this morning, hail to the Lord's anointed, or in other words, Messiah. But because of all these promises, this, this phrase Messiah or Christ, it came to be connected with this promise of the deliverer, the savior, the promised one. So for centuries, people waited for the Christ to come. And then it happened. One day, literally out of the blue, Gabriel came to Mary and he greeted her and he said, do not be afraid, Mary. You notice again, angels, they always start with that because they scare people. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Do you hear the echo there? What God said to David, he will be a son to me. I will be his father. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And then listen to this, the word spoken from Gabriel to Mary and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Do you see that? A direct quote from God's words to David. Gabriel is quoting the covenant with David and saying to Mary, this baby that you're going to have is that long promised son of David. And so we shouldn't be surprised as we see the story unfolding. Remember John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, when his tongue was, was finally loosed after John was born? What did, what did Zechariah say? He said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. That's why the angel, when the angel came to visit Joseph, the angel called him Joseph, son of David. That's why the shepherds were told by the angels, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ, the anointed one, Messiah, the Lord. This is why the Magi from the East came to worship him and bring him gifts because Psalm 72, which talks about the Messiah, the anointed one, calls the nations, all of the nations to come and to bring tribute to the son of David. And that's what happens when the Magi come and give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then as we read through the Gospels, we shouldn't be surprised to hear people talking to Jesus and calling him son of David over and over again. This is a title for the promised one. Matthew 9, 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. 
Matthew 15, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. A Gentile calling him the son of David. You see the all fitting together? Matthew chapter 20, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. You notice something by those, in those three verses I read, and there's a pattern there, that in the Gospels, the people who call Jesus son of David are very often the poor and the needy and the desperate. And that's because Psalm 72, verse 4, Psalm 72 is all about the Messiah, the son of David. And Psalm 72, verse 4, talks about the son of David defending the cause of the poor of the people, giving deliverance to the children of the needy, and crushing the oppressor. Those are where those words come from, right? That second song we sang, Hail to the Lord's Anointed, that's Psalm 72, put to music. And we're talking about the son of David, Jesus who comes to defend the cause of the poor and the needy and to crush the oppressor. Now, this also explains why the people were constantly expecting Jesus to fight with the Romans. Right? It says right there, Psalm 72, verse 4, that the son of David will crush the oppressor. And there's no bigger oppressor than the Roman Empire. Right? Rome had control over Jerusalem and, 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 and all of the people of Israel and Judah, they were strongly oppressed by them. And so if Jesus is the son of David and he's going to crush the oppressor, that means he's going to rumble with Rome and win. That's what everyone thought. And this is likely what's going on on Palm Sunday. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and the crowds are cutting down palm branches, which were a symbol of, of, of Jewish nationalism. And they threw their palm branches down and they shouted, Hosanna, which means, do you know what Hosanna means? It means save us. Hosanna to the son of David. Do you see it now? Jesus riding in, save us, son of David. Jesus Son of David riding into the capital city of his kingdom. Look out, Romans. That's what everyone thought. This is it. That's what everyone thought. So can you imagine just how, how their expectations were just shattered that week? To see by the end of the week, the son of David, or so they thought, arrested by the Romans, beaten by the Romans, and then killed like a slave in the most degrading and shameful way imaginable. I don't think we can ever really imagine how deep the darkness would have been for the followers of Jesus the day after he was killed on the cross. Their entire world fell apart. So how does this all work? Was Jesus really the son of David? And how is this possible when he died and then was nowhere to be seen? And, and the Romans still had free reign of Jerusalem. How, how, does, how do these things work together? And the answer to those questions comes from the apostle Peter in the sermon that he gave to the Jewish crowds on the day of Pentecost, which is what we read from, what Tim just read for us from Acts chapter two. 
Acts chapter 2 talks about the day that the risen and exalted son of David, Jesus Christ, poured out his Holy Spirit upon his followers in Jerusalem. And if you go back and read Acts chapter 2, you'll remember what happened. They were gathered to pray. It sounded like a wind came, tongues of fire. And they went out talking in other languages, real languages that other people could understand, so that all these people from all these different countries that were gathered in Jerusalem were hearing about Jesus in their own languages. And it drew a crowd, as you can imagine. And so in that setting, Peter got up and preached a sermon which demonstrated in just a masterful way. It's just an incredible sermon. He demonstrated that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the ascension of Jesus or the raising of Jesus up to the right hand of the Father in heaven were both a part of the promises about the son of David. That what had happened to Jesus when he died, rose again, and went back to heaven was exactly what the scriptures had always said would happen to the son of David. So how does this work? How how does Peter make this case? Well, that's what we're going to find here as we dig into Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bible open or have your bulletin, we're going to be referring to some of these verses. And first we're going to listen in as Peter speaks about the resurrection of Jesus. And how this proves he's the son of David. So Peter does this by quoting, well, both of these points Peter makes. He does by quoting a psalm, right? The book of Psalms in the Old Testament, two psalms written by David about his own son, the Messiah. And so Peter, first of all, quotes from Psalm 16. That's what he's doing there in verses 25 to 28. He's quoting Psalm 16. And in the middle is this really key verse, verse 27 in in Acts chapter 2. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. This is talking about dying, okay? So when you think about dying and you think of the word corruption... I mean, this is unpleasant, but it's talking there about the corruption of death. It's talking there about our bodies decomposing after they die. The Jewish people were very familiar with this. Common method of burial was laying a body in a tomb on a slab. And after a year or so, coming back and collecting the bones and putting the bones in a little box called an ossuary where they would be kept. This idea of a body decomposing was very familiar to them. And that's what is being talked about here. And so David says, you're not going to let that happen to your Holy One. You're not going to let your Holy One see corruption. Now in the flow of the Psalm, who's David talking about? When David says, you won't let your Holy One see corruption, who's he talking about? And most people... In Peter's day, reading this psalm would have probably thought that he's talking, David's talking about himself. Right? David's referring to me. God, you're not going to let me die. You're not going to let me see corruption. But then listen to what Peter says in verse 29. He says, brothers, there's some humor here. Right? This is kind of, there's some, some irony here. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch da- about the patriarch David, that he both died 
and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, David decomposed. David saw corruption. This psalm cannot be talking, or this verse in this psalm cannot be talking about David. Because David was buried and he stayed there. So then who is this holy one that David is talking about who doesn't see corruption? Verse 30, Peter explains, being therefore a prophet, talking about David now, David's a prophet. God shows him things that are going to happen. Being therefore a prophet and knowing, secondly, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, right? David knew that he was always going to have a king on the throne from him. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. See what Peter's saying here? I love this. See, David knew God's promise. David knew that he was always going to have a son on the throne. That's what God promised. And David was a prophet. And this verse here is a prophecy when David said, you will not let your Holy One see corruption, he was talking about the Messiah. He was talking about his own son who would come from him one day. And he, this son, would not see corruption because God was going to raise him up from the dead and make him the king forever. Just like he promised. And Peter says, this is exactly what happened with Jesus. God did not let his Holy One, Jesus, see corruption. He raised him from the dead. And Peter says, we're all witnesses of this. We've seen it. All of us here have seen the risen Jesus. And so just like the scriptures say, God raised Jesus from the dead, didn't let him see corruption. He is the son of David. So, there's still another big question. If Jesus is the king, the son of David, okay, I understand it kind of puts yourself in the spot of one of the crowd. You're saying his death shouldn't scare us away because God raised him from the dead to fulfill this scripture. Okay, I understand. But where is he now? Where is he now? And why are the Romans still around? If he's the son of David, why is Pilate still in the palace over there. This would have been a tough one for a lot of people. Their whole lives, they expected Jesus to be like David, a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist, like Andrew Peterson sang for us last Monday. And so now they're trying to understand, okay, Jesus is the son of David, but he's not here. He's up in heaven. How, how does this work? And so once again, Peter goes back to a psalm that David wrote to show us that, that Jesus being raised up to heaven was actually a part of the plan all along. And that's what Peter does in verses 34 to 35. In verses 34 to 35, Peter is quoting from Psalm 110. And it says this, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Now this is kind of kind of strange sounding in English because we've got two uses of the same word, Lord. The Lord said to my like how does how does this work? It's easier in the original Hebrew, right? This was originally written in Hebrew, and there's actually it's two different words here. The first time we see the word Lord, it's God's personal name, Yahweh. The second time we see the word Lord, that's a different, totally different word. It's the word Adonai. Adonai was more of a title, like, like master. It could be used for God. It was often used of God, but it sometimes was used of other people too, like kings or so on. So in Hebrew, this, this verse says, right? Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. So that makes a little bit more sense, right? That we see there's two people going on. There's Yahweh, who is God. And then there's Adonai. Well, who, who is the Adonai? Who's the second Lord? And people understood, no one really argued about it, that this second Lord, this Adonai, was the Messiah, the son of David. So, God, Yahweh, says to the Messiah, the son of David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Okay, so that's, that much people didn't really argue about. But think about what this verse is saying. It's saying something absolutely huge. It's saying that when the Messiah comes, he's not going to storm in and take out all of his enemies at once. It's saying that there's going to be a time of waiting, waiting for him to have total victory over his enemies. Right? Do you see that? Right? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, until I put your enemies under your feet. There's going to be a time of waiting where the Messiah is there, but his enemies still haven't been put under his feet. And in that time, God, the Father, invites the Messiah to sit at his right hand and wait. Now this, so far, by the way, is, is pretty obvious. It's what the verse says. And, 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 and Peter's listeners probably wouldn't have argued with this. They just had maybe never noticed it before. And so Peter says, this is exactly what has happened. You want to know where Jesus is? He's exactly where Psalm 110 verse 1 says he should be. Where is that? At the right hand of God in heaven, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. This is such an important verse. This is one of the most, if not the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Did you know that? Psalm 110 verse 1 is quoted in the New Testament almost more, or if not more, than any other verse in the Old Testament. Because it answers the big question, where is Jesus? He's exactly where Psalm 110 verse 1 says he should be. At the right hand of God in heaven, waiting for his enemies to be put under his feet, waiting to have total victory over his enemies. And that's what Peter says he is. That's where Peter says he is, verse 33. He says this, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, 
And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he says this, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is the son of David, Lord, Adonai, and Christ, Messiah. And he is exactly where the scriptures say we should expect him to be, enthroned at God's right hand and waiting to come and crush his enemies under his feet. I hope you know that Jesus being enthroned at God's right hand in heaven doesn't make Jesus any less of a king than if he were enthroned, let's say, here on earth in Jerusalem. Because God's right hand is a place of privilege and power. And from this place, Jesus is reigning as king. This is what we need to understand. Jesus is reigning as king over everything at the God's right hand. Just like the song we sang last week says, enthroned at God's right hand, the world at his command. Or like Jesus said to his disciples right before, right before he went up and, and ascended to his father's right hand, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And from that place, Jesus rules and Jesus waits for the time when he's going to return to earth and his enemies are going to be put under his foot and he's going to crush them underfoot and have complete victory over everything. And friends, that's where Jesus has been for the past 2,000 years. That's where Jesus is right at this very moment, reigning at the Father's right hand and waiting. And I hope you know why he's waiting. It's not because his enemies are too strong for him. It's not because it's been a little bit more effort than expected to put his enemies under his feet. No, Jesus could have all of his enemies under his feet right now. Revelation 19 shows us what's going to happen when he comes back. It's not going to be pretty for those who oppose Jesus, and there is going to be no contest. So Jesus waits, not because he's, this is hard, but Jesus waits because he wants to do more than just crush his enemies. Jesus wants to save some of his enemies. Isn't that amazing? He could have the throne right now. And where would so many of us be? Where would we be if Jesus had done what his disciples expected him to do? Jesus is waiting so that he can save some of his enemies. And he's commissioned his church to go into all the nations as his ambassadors. And he's offered the nations a peace treaty that we call the gospel. And as people, as you and me, accept those terms of peace, we become a part of the empire of King Jesus. And it's only when we've finished this mission of bringing good news to all the nations that the end will finally come, like Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14. And so where does this leave us? What it means is that we have a job to do. We have a mission to fulfill on behalf of the king. The king has commissioned us to go be his ambassadors and bring terms of peace to the rebel world because the king is coming back with his armies in tow. And we repent or we perish. 
Why is it, though, that it seems so hard for us to get this? Why is it that we don't often really live like there is a king waiting for us to finish his job before he returns? Why is it that even now this might sound kind of fairy tale ish instead of real life ish? By the way, it is a fairy tale. The true fairy tale, right? Like C.S. Lewis said, it's the, it's the true story that all the other fairy tales that stir our hearts are just pointing to. It is real. It is true. There is a king coming for us. But why is it that we have such a hard time getting that? Why is it that we have such a hard time feeling that? Why is it that this is such a struggle? I think there's a few reasons, but I think one of the reasons is that this whole idea of, of a king is just kind of foreign to so many of us, right? Like none of us here have ever lived under the rule of a king here on earth. We've never had someone over us that has absolute power. And in fact, we, it's like we've, most of us here raised in democracies, we've been trained to think that absolute power is a bad thing, right? The word dictator, good word or bad word. I think very bad word. People with absolute power are bad. And so we tend to just think about Jesus the same way we think about Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth, right? She's our queen. What does that actually mean? It means we honor her and sing some songs that don't really mean anything, but we make the decisions around here. Thank you very much. Isn't it true that very often, even as followers of Jesus, we tend to think about his kingship in the same kind of way. But friends, that's not what the kingship of Jesus is like. Jesus is a real king with real authority. Listen to these words. Jesus is a dictator, a good and a loving and a kind dictator but a dictator. Jesus has absolute power and he doesn't share it with anybody. Just listen to these words that he said before going back to heaven. Listen to these words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Can you imagine anybody else saying those words? Can you imagine what the news would do if someone, some political leader stood on a hill and said that to his followers? I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Go, my followers, teach people around the world to do everything I've commanded you. We would think that person is is a nutcase, but more than that, someone who's dangerous, someone who needs to be stopped, someone who's terrible. But friends, Jesus says these words with no blushing because he is a king with imperial power, absolute authority to command and to send as he pleases. He is a real, real king. See, I used to think that, think about the Christmas story for a minute. I used to think that Herod was silly when he got all paranoid about the new king that was born, right? The wise men came, the magi, and they said, oh, we've heard a new king is born. And Herod freaked out because he was worried about himself and so he had all the boys killed. I remember before as a kid kind of thinking, come on, Herod, Jesus isn't that kind of a king. Come on. 
But you know what? I was wrong. Herod was right to fear Jesus. Herod was right to fear the new king. Herod understood the kingship of Jesus better than I did. The kingship of Jesus is one of the main reasons why the early Christians were persecuted so much, right? Because the early Christians proclaimed, Jesus is Lord. And this was a direct hit on the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire proclaimed, Caesar is Lord. That was, their, that was their gospel. That was what they made people say. Caesar is Lord. And when the Roman Empire tried to make the Christians say Caesar is Lord, the Christians said, no, I can't say that. You know, the Christians didn't say, oh, well, you know, Jesus isn't really Lord in that way. I mean, Jesus is just kind of the Lord of my heart, you know? No, no, they didn't say that. The early Christians understood that if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not And then I can't say Jesus is Lord and Caesar is Lord at the same time. And they died for that. They were killed by the scores because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. They understood this properly. Do you see, Jesus is king. His kingdom is real. The kingdom of God is not some club we join. I've been part of clubs before. It's part of the Wildlife Federation in Regina for a year. I had the card in my back pocket. It was nice. And isn't it true we sometimes think about the kingdom of God like that? But it's not like that. When, Jesus, when Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven, he really meant it. That's where we're really citizens of. That's the real country you belong to. You're the real king in charge of you. And so we don't just look at the world around us the way everybody else does. You see, this is what I was getting at a couple weeks ago when I talked about immigration. Because when we hear that word immigration, is our first instinct to think about it like citizens of Canada? With all the issues of Canada on our mind? Or is our first instinct to think about that issue and every other issue as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus? we may find that there's some things that are important to us as Canadians that just aren't that important to King Jesus and vice versa. Jesus is a real king. And if you have been saved by him, you are a part of his real kingdom. This is hard. It's hard to think this way. It's easy to think just like I'm a Canadian who happens to go to church on the weekend. It's hard to think like a fully orbed citizen of the kingdom of God. It's always been that way. It's always been hard to think this way. That's why Paul had to tell the Colossians, listen to this from Colossians chapter three. He said, if then you've been raised with Christ, right? Raised to the right hand of the father, seek Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are of earth. Hear what Paul's saying here? We have to intentionally set our minds on the truth. Because if we don't, the stuff of earth is just going to distract us. And we're not going to think like citizens of the kingdom of heaven. 
We're just going to think like everybody else. We have to intentionally set our minds on things above. So we got to be careful what we think about. We need to be careful of the way that things of earth, like money and politics, social media, television, movies, entertainment, sports, all kinds of things that don't matter, how they can just pull our minds down to earth and make us think like everybody else. And Paul says, no, set your mind on things above where Jesus is reigning as king. This is just one more reason why reading the Bible or listening to the Bible regularly and thinking about it and chewing on it just is a non-negotiable. How else can we set our mind on things above if we're not taking in God's word and letting it shape the way we think? We're almost done. But there's one more stop we're going to make this morning. One more question to ask. Here's the question. How does King Jesus exercise his authority in your life? Right, so Jesus is the son of David. He's the king. If you have been saved by him, placed your faith in him, you're part of his empire. He's your king. What does it actually look like? How does that happen? How does Jesus have rule in your life? And I think there's one answer that comes to mind right away, which is that when we read the Bible, which is the word of our king, and we obey it. Whatever it says, we do, because this is the words of my king. And you know what? That is a good answer. That's where it starts. Right? People who say, uh, I'm, not, I'm not really into that kind of thing. Well, they can't be followers of Jesus and reject the Bible. This is the words of our king. But there's more than that. Because Jesus has a representative here on earth. Just like the queen has a governor general here in Canada, Jesus has a representative who represents his authority here on earth. It's called the church. Does that surprise you? This is what's going on in Ephesians chapter 1, he raised Jesus up above all rule and power and authority and made him head over his church, which is his body. One of the things we see in the New Testament is that the son of David exercises his authority through the church. One of the clearest places and ways we see this in the New Testament is with the idea of church discipline. When someone says, I follow Jesus, but they refuse to obey him and refuse to live like it, Jesus commands his church to take action and set the record straight. Just listen to these words from Matthew chapter 18. With everything we've heard this morning in your minds, listen to these words. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This means an, an outsider. And then Jesus says this, truly I say to you, this is just, just one sentence to the next, no break here. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree about any, 
If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am among them. There's so much there we can't, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this needs a sermon or two. But do you see what Jesus is saying? First of all, there's, he's assuming here that as Christians, at least when it comes to issues of sin, we should listen to the church. It's expected, right? If he refuses to listen to the church, right? We should submit to the authority of the church. And if we don't, then the church has the authority to say, you are no longer an insider, you are an outsider. That's what Jesus says. And in, it's in this context that Jesus talks about binding and loosing. And did you catch that? What the church does on earth, he does in heaven. And then he says, where two or three of you are gathered, there I am with you. He's not talking about showing up to our prayer meetings, although I believe that's true. But this verse gets misquoted all the time. Where two or three of you are gathered, there I am with you. It's talking about church discipline. And he's saying that when the church gets together to act in discipline against someone who's refusing to repent, I'm there with you. Do you see how this is all fitting together? Jesus exercises his authority in our life our lives through the church. So one more scripture here that we need to hear how this actually worked itself out. So in the church in Corinth, there was a man who has, was in a relationship with his dad's wife. And this is what Paul told them to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to this. Think about this in the context of the church and the kingship of Jesus. He said this, when you are assembled... When you're assembled, right? This isn't just one person that gets to do this. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Right? That phrase, deliver him to Satan, is just talking about putting him outside the church. Because right? outside the church is the kingdom of darkness. That's the domain of Satan. And again, there's so much here that we talk, could talk about, but do you see the idea? The assembled church acts with the power and the authority of Jesus. Jesus is exercising his authority through the assembled church. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that, that church membership is so important. Because when we become a member of a church, we're saying, I commit to submit to the authority of this church. I'm not just going to slip out the back door when things get uncomfortable. I'm not just a free agent. I will submit to the authority of the risen Jesus by submitting to the authority of this local church. That's one of the major reasons why church membership is so important. And I know that some of you might be uncomfortable with this. And the way I know that is because I'm uncomfortable with this. I'm Canadian. I was born in Ottawa. I'm a, born and raised in democracy. I'm not used to this idea, but you know what? It's true. So I'm not going to ignore this. I need to change and bow my knee to Jesus in whatever way he tells me to do that. And that means, yes, submitting to his word. And that means, yes, submitting to his church. And so we come to our conclusion. There's a lot there, isn't there? Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the son of David, the king, the promised one, born of Mary, died 
under Pontius Pilate, raised from the dead and seated at the Father's right hand, just like the scriptures promised. He's waiting to come and put his enemies under his feet. And in that time, he offers us peace because on the cross, he paid for our own treason against him. Can you imagine that? The king dying to pay for his subject's treason. That's what Jesus did. And he offers us a royal pardon when we lay down our weapons and bow our knees before him. So if you've never done that, if you're here this morning, if you've never bowed your knee to King Jesus, why not today? Why not lay your weapons down today and say, I receive your offer of peace, King Jesus. Be my king, be my savior. Why not do that today? And if you have bowed your knees to King Jesus, then what this passage calls us to do, what all these passages call us to do is to go from here and live as citizens of the kingdom, to set our minds on the throne room where Jesus is reigning, to obey his word and to submit to his authority. So what does that look like for you this week? Does it look like spending more time in God's word instead of other distractions? Does it look like finally obeying Jesus on some issue you've been holding out on? Does it look like going and sharing the gospel with someone else? Does it look like talking to me about coming to the membership seminar we're going to do in the new year? Each of us has opportunities this week to submit to the loving rule of the son of David. And as we do that, as we're going to sing here, we're going to, we look forward to the day when his enemies will be put under his feet and he's going to reign with no opposition from sea to sea. And that's what we're going to sing in song now. Jesus will reign. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you help us to treasure this? Would you help us to cherish this? Would you help us to think about this? Would you help us to bend our knees to the authority of our good and loving King? Would you help us to lay down our weapons? Would you help us to embrace the reign of the Son of David? Hail to the Lord's anointed. Jesus, thank you that you came. Thank you that you're coming again. Amen.